I'll be reading First um, Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I find that the longer that I live, the more solidified that Sunday remains my favorite day of the week. I pray that it's a source of great joy and encouragement to you to be gathered together, and it's really good to see you this morning. I want to ask you a question. The Apostle Paul wrote many letters of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul visited the church, churches in America today. What would he say? Perhaps he would be able to put an end to all of the worship wars over the last few years. Or maybe he would bring a level of clarity over whether or not pastors should preach in a tie or in jeans or in the combo. (laughs) I wonder what he would think about the time that we offer our church gatherings. I wonder what he would think about the programs that we offer. While all of those questions at some level bear some significance as we think about the church, it seems that he would be fundamentally concerned with two questions. Is this true? Is this church marked by truth? And is this church marked by love? Is the church marked by truth? Is the church marked by love? Surveys from the last few years have shown some startling revelations about the church in America. Uh, One survey that I looked at said that there has been a sharp decline in the number of churches who are placing an emphasis on scripture reading, both individually and corporately. What that means is that fewer churches are turning to the truth of God's word as part of their daily and weekly dependence upon him. Not only that, but nearly two out of every three churches that reported in this particular survey reported one of these areas to have held a significant conflict in the last few months in the areas of preferences and leadership style. Preferences in worship, service, and in how to handle conflict. I believe Paul would address the church in America today by asking about truth and love, 
And at least some surveys are reflecting that the American church is standing in need of a reemergence, a resurgence of truth and love. And sadly, this thing which would concern Paul, truth and love, a truth that's rooted in love, is the thing that the American church seems to be most willing to compromise. The scorecard that most churches uh, hold today and live by today is not the scorecard of truth and love. Oftentimes, it's the scorecard of effectiveness and pragmatism. As the church experiences growth numerically or as it loses growth numerically, the temptation is to be more concerned about efficiency and what works. Perhaps even pitting truth and love is somehow not important to the matter at hand. As one pastor put it, in a shopping mall world, we are becoming used to a shopping mall church where churches are trying to exist to meet the needs of those who attend as defined and understood by those who attend. And so I think on the authority of God's word, we can say this morning that the church today, and it's the strength of the church today, it isn't found in its numbers. It's not, a found, it's not found in its efficiency Those things can be blessings and helps. But the strength of the church today lies in her humble commitment to truth and her willingness to exercise that in love. You say, well, Justin, how can I know that if Paul visited, he would be concerned with these matters? Well, because when we read Paul's letters to pastors and churches throughout the New Testament, there is a consistent theme. How are you doing upholding truth and how are you doing walking that out in love? We read the letters to his churches and they're centered on that very thing. In fact, fact, when Paul had the opportunity to return to a church that he had planted in Ephesus, he encountered two problems. They lacked truth and they lacked love. And the letter of 1 Timothy is Paul's response to this pastor and to this church who struggled to rightly live out God's truth, and and love. And so as we get started this morning, I just want to ask you a question or two to sort of locate yourself in this story. How are you doing as it pertains to truth? Are you steadfast in it? Are you holding strongly to the truth even as the winds of culture are beginning to encourage you to compromise it? ever so slightly. Are you easily bored with truth? Do you believe that the most important thing about a church is what she believes? Are you giving yourself to ensure that a culture of sound doctrine permeates the local church that you belong to? Well, what about love? Are you Christ-like in your thoughts? Are you Christ-like in your speech and your feelings and your actions towards others? Can you lay down preferences for the good of the whole? Do you give the benefit of the doubt to others? Are you a peacemaker in your relationship? Do you promote a disposition of love? 
Do you speak the truth in love? Well, as we prepare to unpack this letter, 1 Timothy, over the next 18 weeks, I've been praying. I want to ask you to join with me in prayer as we ask the Lord by His Spirit to help us be a people who are robust, who are rich in truth, and who overflow in love. I'd like for even the greeting that we cover this morning for the Spirit to begin to do that work in us. And so would you pray with me? Our Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we come to you on the basis of the work of Christ. And that work of Christ is something that even in the greeting of this letter, Paul is not going to allow us to get away from. And I pray that over the next several months, you would allow us to be a church that grows together in believing what your word says and gladly submitting to it. And then in walking out those truths in love together. Would you make us, make us clear displays of your manifold wisdom. Help us to be a church that much like the settings of a ring, hold up the diamond that is Christ. Use our time, even in your word today, to grow our love for Christ. Help us to behold Christ. Help us to rejoice and worship Christ. And for that to happen, I am convinced that the sermon that is heard must be far more effective than the one that is preached. And so, Spirit, attend your word now, we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to 1 Timothy. Letter of 1 Timothy will be in chapter 1, and so if you will go to, in your Bibles and you'll flip through 1 Timothy, it's towards the end of the New Testament. We'll be in chapter 1, that will be the large number. The smaller numbers will be the verses, we'll be in verses 1 and 2 this morning. And I do want to encourage us to continue our worship, even after the singing is done, we worship as we gather around and we hear from and we submit to the Word of God that is preached. As you're turning there, it may be helpful for us to set the stage for not just today, but for the next 18 weeks. As we set the stage for the next 18 weeks, it's helpful for us to know a little bit of the context in which uh, Paul is writing. Uh, The plan was for me to cover the first five verses this morning. And uh, I just found in studying this I found that there's a lot of riches to be mined out in two verses. And I found that when I preached or when I studied through verse 5, the temptation was to sort of get quickly past verses 1 and 2 to get to 3 through 5. And so uh, I thought we would be served this morning by a smaller slice of the book. And I blessed Nick with giving him a larger slice of the book next week. And so... uh, Grace to Nick next week. Uh, The story of 1 Timothy really begins in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. So if we're trying to locate where in the world is, uh, what's the the situation surrounding the context of this letter? And so we're trying to locate this letter. The letter of 1 Timothy was written while Timothy is at the church at Ephesus. Acts chapter 19, Paul enters the city of Ephesus. 
Just to give you an idea, the city of Ephesus would be much like any of our major metropolitan cities today. It would be large, it would be diverse, it would be religiously complex, it would be booming economically. And while Paul, when he rolls into Ephesus, he finds disciples who had believed John the Baptist's message, but they had not been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. So that great commission, Matthew 28, we see... Every day for those disciples, they walk into the synagogue every day for three months and they teach and they reason and they seek to persuade those that were putting their faith in the Judeo-Christian belief. Some people were hardened in their unbelief, so Paul then Decides it's not best to keep coming back here. So he takes those disciples and he goes and he rents out the hall of Tyrannus. And these believers are formed into a church here in Ephesus. And Paul stays doing, again, what the Great Commission tells him to do. Not only just getting them to a place of decision, but also teaching them to observe all that Christ had commanded. While he's staying teaching them to observe all that Christ had commanded. The rest of Acts chapter 19 tells us the story that essentially nothing short of a revival breaks out. People began in droves repenting of their sin and turning away from their idolatrous worship and worshiping the true and living God. As that happens, we see people are beginning to be healed. The Lord, through His Spirit, shows up in mighty ways. And one of the clearest ways it shows up in Ephesus, again, think major metropolitan cities, is that a large section of the businesses begin to be shut down because people are no longer worshiping their idols. And so just think the impact that a movement by the people of God could make even on a large city. Sinful businesses are being closed down because people start worshiping Christ. The townspeople are not happy at, at all. And so they drive Paul out through the rest of Acts chapter 19. And so it would be safe to say that Paul loves this church. He cares deeply for this church. He gave three years of his life to this church so much love for this church that as he's on his way, later on making his way back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20, he stops to meet with the elders of the church at Ephesus. And in this moving scene in Acts chapter 20, Paul pours out his heart to these elders of this church and he leaves them in the middle of this sort of farewell speech, he leaves them with these words, beginning in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, he's speaking to the elders, Men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And so you would think, wow, he just came and in the middle of this tearful, poignant moment, he gives them a warning and he gives them a charge. 
And you can just see, you can capture the rest of how this, this moment ended in, ver- in, in verses 36 and 37. When he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all, and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul, repeatedly kissed him, grieving over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. He gives these elders at Ephesus that are there at the church that he loves, that he spent three years of his life serving in. He gives them a warning. The warning, verses 29 and 30, that fierce wolves will come from within to draw believers away from Christ. And he gives them a charge in light of that warning. Guard her faithfully. Protect the bride of Christ. The book of Acts ends. Paul is in prison. Shortly after he's released, he's traveling with Timothy to spread the gospel in Macedonia. He's traveling with Timothy to spread the gospel in Macedonia. They stop in Ephesus to just see how the church is doing. This is a few years removed from this meeting in Acts chapter 20. Paul said in Acts 20, there will be some who tried to divide the church from within. A few years later, he's traveling with Timothy. They stop at at Ephesus, and what they find is that things are not going well at all. Some of the teachers were doing exactly what Paul said they would do in Acts chapter 20. He's going to name them later on in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and he's telling them they are completely undermining the church with their false teachings. They are, not a true, they are not being a church that's rooted in truth. And the church lacked love in how to live with one another. And Paul's compelled to continue moving on to Macedonia. But he urges Timothy to stay here in Ephesus. Do the work of a faithful pastor here. They need a faithful shepherd. Paul goes to Macedonia And he turns and he writes this letter to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, reminding him of how he ought to pastor. But here's the thing. This letter, though it bears Timothy's name, it wasn't merely a letter to Timothy. It was a letter to Timothy, letting Timothy know how he ought to pastor. But if you go throughout the letter, what you would find is in places where there seems to be this, he's talking to Timothy those pronouns are often plural. For example, the very last verse in the, the whole book, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 21, he ends this. He says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid these things. Some have professed, they've gone astray from the faith. Then he says, grace be with you. The you is plural. And so Paul understood that while this letter was written to Timothy, it was also written to Timothy to be read to the church. First Timothy is one of the, uh, it's the first of the three letters that are commonly known as the pastoral epistles, the pastoral letters written to two different pastors, Timothy and Titus, about matters of the church. And here's the thing, it would be a mistake for you and I to think, this is the pastoral epistles. This is a letter for the pastors. This is not a letter for me as a part of the church. 
I love what David Platt said. David Platt said, this is much, this is definitely a need-to-know book for pastors, but it's much more than that. This is a need-to-know book for every Christian in the local church, which is the biblically prescribed place for all Christians to belong. Here's why it's not just for pastors. 1 Timothy is a letter that's going to help the church answer questions like this. How does the Old Testament law apply to New Testament Christians? And so 1 Timothy will give us some uh, answers there. It will help us make our way through, can women teach in the church? Chapter 2. It will help us understand what qualifies someone to be an elder and to be a deacon. Chapter 3. It will help us know how do we spot a false teacher. Chapter 4. It will help us know which widows should the church support. In chapter 5. It will help us answer the question, what should wealthy Christians do with their money? Chapter 6. We are many centuries removed from the writing of this letter, and yet its relevance to our day is staggering. Alistair Begg said that this letter was written in a time when people gave plausibility to anything and certainty to nothing. People give plausibility to anything and certainty to nothing. That's like cut and paste our culture today. The relevance of this letter can't be overstated for you and I. And there are really two reasons that Paul writes this letter that he makes known. The first in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. He says, Timothy, I am entrusting this to you so that by these truths you may fight the good fight. He wants Timothy to persevere in the hard work of walking with the people of God towards glory. And so he's writing to be an encouragement to Timothy. But I think the thesis of the whole letter is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of of the truth, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And so if we had sort of one thematic verse for the whole letter of 1 Timothy, it's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. How ought God's people conduct themselves as the household of faith? Because as the household of faith, they are to, to be the support and the foundation of truth. And they ought to support and, and, and be founded in truth in a loving manner. And so this letter was written so that we would know, covenant life would know how to conduct ourselves when we come together as followers of Christ and when we spread out to serve the Lord throughout the week. As the pillar and the foundation of the truth, the church has a weighty calling. And 1 Timothy will help us explore and better understand this calling. And so I want to be as clear as I can. This letter is not merely a letter that's relevant for the church at Ephesus. Covenant Life Church needs this letter. And so I pray that for the next 18 weeks, you will jump aboard as we walk through this letter. And this morning, we're going to look at the greeting, and I pray that we are each moved at the richness of this greeting in, 
in what I believe the same way that Paul intended Timothy to be encouraged at the greeting. How easily it is that we move past the greeting pretty quickly. But these parts of the Word of God are intended to do us spiritual good. And so we'll look at the greeting this morning and want us to notice three things. I want us to first see what the greeting teaches us about Paul, to see what this greeting teaches us about Timothy, and then I think what the main point of this greeting is, to see what it teaches us about God. So what the greeting teaches us about Paul, about Timothy, and about God, those three points will serve as the sermon points. So the first thing, what do we learn, and what does the greeting teach us about Paul? Look again at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope. So what we learn first is that Paul is the, is the author of this letter. He's, he's authoring the letter. Paul, when we hear Paul, we should think, okay, wait, Paul. Paul was the, the Hebrew whose name used to be Saul. He was Saul of Tarsus, who was a Roman citizen of a Jewish family. He was wealthy. He was highly educated. He sat under the premier of teachers, and he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. When it came to the, identi the identity of Paul, I mean, he was everything that Jewish culture had hoped Jewish rabbis would be. I mean, he was, he was the epitome of a man that was committed to the teachings. So much so, he was, we could even say he was a terrorist. Saul was a terrorist, taking it upon himself to go around and to arrest and imprison and kill early followers of Jesus. We see this happening in Acts chapter 7 through 9. And something happens in Acts chapter 9. He's given an order to go to Damascus to continue his terrorism. And on his way going to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, this is what we read in verses 3 through 6. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Great response. Verse 5, he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. Jesus appears to Saul on his way to Damascus and literally this appearance changes everything about Saul's life. He's struck blind, he's converted, he's called into ministry. And you can imagine what it must have been like in those churches when, when, when Saul showed up. Saul showed up and there was this great fear about him. Just imagine, I, mean, I was just thinking about this this week. Saul shows up to our service this morning and we know I mean, he has been going around all over just Brandon, St. Pete, Riverview. I mean, he's just going around and he's putting to death and he's seeking to imprison and he shows up and he says, hey guys, I've come to faith. I was going to Damascus. I was blinded. I've come to faith. Now I want to be here and worship with you. It's like, all right, uh, what do we do? Well, let's pray. It's like, I'm not closing my eyes if Saul's in the room. <laughs> like this is, no, no, no. How in the world did this guy 
don't breeze past God's grace even in the fact that we read Paul and not Saul. Paul, the name change, represents an identity change. This former terrorist, now missionary, he's writing this letter and it's just oozing with the grace of God. I wonder this morning, if there are people that you believe in your mind, the Lord's arm just probably is not strong enough or can reach far enough to get that one. The fact that this letter is written by Paul should just reorganize how we think about the Lord's mighty hand to save. We also learn that Paul was an apostle. In Scripture, that word is used in two ways. One is uh, in a general sense of just being a messenger. I'm, I'm the mailman carrying someone else's message. The other way is a specific sense. And it refers to this small, unique, one-time group of individuals who were chosen, who were called, who were sent by Christ. They were witnesses to the resurrected Christ. They were endowed with a special measure of the Spirit. Their work was confirmed by signs and wonders. Their work extended and had implications for the totality of the church. And so if I could say it in the specific way, that would mean that there are no more apostles like that. There are messengers, people that are going, faithful to take the message. Paul is an apostle. He's the latter of Christ Jesus because of this interaction that he has here in Acts chapter 9. He's called the one who met Paul and changed him is the one to whom Paul says, I am his apostle. He changed my life and now I am his messenger. And here's the thing, Paul in other letters wouldn't say that, oh man, he changed my life and you'll never guess what he signed me up for. No, 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 that's not at all what he says. In fact, Philippians chapter three, he says, anything that was ever counted gain to me, I count all of that as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count it but rubbish that I may be Found in Christ, having a, not having a righteousness of my own that's derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, so that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul gladly says this one... In, whom I used to oppose, now I am a glad messenger of his. I've been, I've been placed in service in this way. And it's all joy compared to anything else that this life offers. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. Christ there, would, uh, it's the Hebrew word for Messiah. And so Paul is saying something. He's not saying Christ is his first name, Jesus is his last name, or Jesus is his first name, Christ is his last name. He's saying this, there's the designation, Jesus is the one whom the Old Testament long awaited for, the long prophesied one. The Old Testament gave us hints all throughout that Christ would be the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament longings. 
all the promises that were made in the Old Testament, they are yes in Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. I belong to this one, not just the one who showed up on the scene 30-something years ago, but I belong to the one who was prophesied about even in Genesis chapter 3, the one who would come. He says, I belong to the one who would be the better Adam, the one who would reverse the curse and reunite God to his people and who would restore all things. That's the exact opposite of what happened with the first Adam. And he said this, the Christ would be the better Moses. He wouldn't merely lead his people out of uh, an army's harm. No, he would lead an exodus of his people out of the bondage to their sin and to Satan and to death. He would be the better David. The man who would truly be after God's own heart, whose reign would never end. He would be the true servant, Isaiah chapter 40, verse uh, through 55. He would be the anointed one who would have true dominion, who would die for the salvation of the world. Yes, he would be the, the true conqueror. Isaiah chapter 1 through 37 makes clear that there is coming this worldwide king who would wear garments of salvation and judgment. And it's Christ. It's Jesus. He would be the branch, Jeremiah chapter 23 and 33. He would be the king who would save God's people and would rule with justice and righteousness. He would be the true son of man, Daniel chapter 7, who would be given dominion and and glory and, and a kingdom that would not pass away. And Paul says in just these few words, I am an apostle to this unprecedented, unrivaled, all-majestic one. If you are a Christian this morning in this room, do you understand that you are the messenger to this king? There's not another accomplishment that your shelf can hold, that your wall can hang, that will be greater than this. I pray that we would marvel at the fact that we are the mailman to this Christ. He was named apostle according to the commandment of God, our Savior in Christ Jesus, who is our hope. This appointment to apostle, that wasn't owing to to him. He didn't self-appoint. He didn't go around and take a straw poll, should he do this? No, this was owing to the authority and the command of God himself. And so what he's going to share in this letter, it's not his opinions, it's not his matters of taste, it's the word of God. He had received a word, he had received authority, and it's from that authority that he speaks to Timothy. He's been given this message, and because he's been given it, he must speak it. Because he was commanded by God, the pronoun our there, God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. It would have led the listener, it would have led the church in hearing this letter read. It would have led them to just hang on every word. He's not speaking his opinion. This is our God speaking to us. What do we learn, secondly, about Timothy? What do we learn about Timothy? Well, look at verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Paul uses the word that's often described there, uh, often used to describe biological children, to describe Timothy. 
Paul says, Timothy is my true child in the faith. Spiritually speaking, Timothy is Paul's own son. You see, we could go back and we could trace this out. Timothy was in Lystra when Paul came through preaching the gospel. Seems to be either Timothy was converted while Paul was preaching the gospel, kind of building on the seed that was sown from his family, or he was converted and Paul came in and preached the gospel and kind of helped him grow in in his stature of godliness. Nevertheless, Timothy hears Paul. He then signs up and he travels with Paul. Timothy travels with Paul for much of his second and his third missionary journeys. Again, 2 Timothy 1.5 shows us that Timothy's mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois were faithful to speak the truth to him. His dad was a Greek unbeliever. So again, just even in the greeting, we see, remember God's grace that saved this terrorist? And then we have this other example of just remembering God's grace of saving this one who grew up and his family life wasn't ideal. His dad wasn't around to teach him the scriptures. In fact, his dad was hostile to the scriptures. Praise God for faithful parents and grandparents who who deposit God's word into the hearts of their children and grandchildren. Paul would come alongside the work that they had done and would disciple him in the faith. And Timothy would give his life to serving Paul and seeking to advance the gospel with Paul. Paul would say of Timothy later, Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, I have no one else who's like him. And Timothy was so dear to Paul. And so to leave him in Ephesus, whenever he continued his trek to Macedonia, wasn't because he was trying to get rid of Timothy. He loved Timothy. But he trusted Timothy. And because he trusted Timothy, he said, stay and do this work. Just even reading and thinking about the work that that Timothy's mother and grandmother had done and how Paul, another Christian, came along and and helped kind of massage that work and bring it into a faith that would blossom. It just makes me praise God for the wider church family that commits to nurture and to invest into others whose family has been depositing gospel seed in their lives. I think about this personally as as a dad. To know that they're believers... There are believing young ladies in this church that are coming alongside my daughters and just saying, I want to invest and I want to nurture what it is that's being taught in the home. I want to help just sort of, and my daughters, right? I, I can tell them X and then someone who's got longer hair and is way younger and cooler tells them the same X and the Lord sees fit to use that to get through in ways, and I'm so grateful for a church. And I pray that it would just continue, that we would see ourselves as having responsibility, not just for one another, but even how we encourage discipleship in one another's families. The greeting is overflowing with love and tenderness and affection for his son in the faith. Yet, do you notice that in verse 1, when speaking of himself, Paul can't help but speak much of God? And then the same thing in verse 2. And speaking of young Timothy, he quickly gets to the goodness of God. And this is what 
I believe, will be the center point of Paul's message in this greeting, and it's our last point this morning. Number three, what do we learn about God? We see this in verses one and two. Anytime we open the Bible, God isn't merely speaking to us. He's not merely preserved these words so that we would learn a few things. He's always revealing himself in and through the Bible. He's always revealing himself. And in this greeting, we're told many wonderful things about God. And so the the main reason that we've gathered together this morning is to open this book and to behold the Christ that the Holy Spirit is magnifying and to love him more deeply. And so let's consider what it is that we learn about God in just, again, these two short verses. First, Paul was appointed as an apostle by the commandment of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Paul has just done something that would have been unthinkable to the Jews in his day. He's done it to, it would have been unthinkable to the Jews in our day. It would be unthinkable to Muslims in our day. For those that are not yet Christians in our day, he puts Jesus, our hope, on the same bar, the same level as God, our Savior. The commandment that called him to the office was from God, our Savior, in Christ Jesus, who is our hope. This man was arresting people in Acts 7 through 9 for believing this. It wasn't that they're... That that Paul was upset, Saul at the time was upset that people were believing in God. No, he was upset that people were believing that Jesus was God. And now he's saying, that's the only reason I'm an an apostle. It's because Jesus is indeed God. This is the consistent teaching of the Bible. It makes clear to us there is one God who exists in three separate distinct persons, not one God who appears in three different states at different times. Each person, Father, Son, and Spirit, are fully God and and equally one. I mean, Jesus even said, John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. And Paul has just said, yeah, Jesus is God. And because he's God, maybe that informs and maybe that helps us understand why there's complete submission and allegiance to him. I wonder this morning if you believe that Jesus is God. If you don't, I would just encourage you, there's no better place to be than be with this group of people who would be willing to say, I would love to walk with you as you begin to consider the claims of Jesus. Right, because we can't say he's a good teacher because he taught that he was God. He would be a bad teacher. If you don't believe he's God, then you can't say he's a good prophet because he prophesied that he was God and that he would do that which only God can do. And if he's not God, then that would make him a bad prophet. And you can't say he's a good man because good men don't lie. Do you believe Jesus is God? Let us have those conversations with you. Find anyone after the service at the information table. We would love to... To have the opportunity to walk with you through that. But secondly, we see that God is our Savior and Christ Jesus is our hope. It's not common to read it put that way, but Paul's wanting to pinpoint specific truths about God in this greeting. He says, God is our Savior. The New Testament shows that Jesus was the one who died on the, sin, uh, died on the cross for our sins. 
But it was the Father who ordained our salvation before the foundations of the world. It was the Son who accomplished it. But because the Father ordained it, we can say that He is our Savior. For all who repent and believe, they can have what they need. They can have a Savior. And it's this God who saves. It's a God who will forgive sin and rescue us from the penalty of sin. It's a God who saves from from sin and saves from despair and from guilt and from shame and from emptiness and from meaninglessness and from Satan and from death and from eternal judgment. God is our Savior and Christ Jesus is our hope. Not, not like wishful thinking, but confident expectation that He is everything that we need Him to be. And our hope isn't merely that He died but it's that he rose on the third day and he is coming back. And so our hope is that this isn't all there is. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where we will get to dwell with him forever. No more tears, no more sin, just unprecedented joy to be with our God. This confident expectation in Christ, in his person, in his divinity, in his incarnation, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his current role and reign, in his future return. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, apart from anything that we have done or will do. And now, because of that, we can be at peace with God. We can be adopted and sealed and made part of his family. And so our hope is wrapped up in all of that, and it finds its ultimate source in Christ Jesus. And so again, I mean, you just, you, Paul's writing a greeting, and he's just overflowing with riches of truth about who God is. And this greeting makes clear that God gives gifts to his people. And he mentions three of them in verse 2. He mentions grace and mercy and peace. Grace and mercy and peace. Grace, God's unobligated, undeserved favor. His love, his forgiveness to those who are guilty. It's not a thing to be bought. It's a disposition and an attitude. It's a way in which he loves his people. He gives what's not deserved, which means that apart from his grace, we will all get what we deserve. And what you and I deserve when we sin against, when we offend a holy God, an an infinite God, is we get an eternal punishment that would be the exact opposite of all that is good, all that God is. It would be horrendous torture, separation, agony. And the Bible says there is a little, a literal, not little, a literal place called hell. In one word, we get God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. But he also mentions mercy. 
God shows compassion on the unfortunate. It's withholding the justice and the hardship that we're deserving of because of our sin or because of the situation that we're in. God's compassion on those who cannot help or save themselves. Mercy withholds what is deserved. Grace gives what's undeserved. Mercy withholds what is deserved. Mercy gives relief while grace gives pardon. Mercy helps while grace mends and repairs. And then he said, you get peace. We get peace. Not just the absence of conflict. We get complete flourishing. It's shalom. It's peace in the fullest. It's the reconciliation of things which were previously alienated. One of the most troubling things for the human soul is the absence of peace. And every one of us, because of our sin nature, are born without peace towards God. What's your experience of grace and mercy and peace? Do you live in the riches that these gifts are if you are in Christ? They're yours. It means you don't have to, you're not weighted down by shame and guilt because grace covers it. Mercy is withholding what you deserve and peace is what you have with your God. They don't rest with human ability, but in divine grace, these gifts are given. David Platt says, says this, Neither Timothy nor the church at Ephesus was being called to clean up their act in order to gain God's favor. For that matter, neither are we, as followers of Christ today, called to appease a perfectly just and holy God through our obedience. God himself has decisively dealt with the sin in the cross of his dear son, thus securing for us an eternal and unshakable hope. And on this basis, God addresses us. Conducting ourselves rightly in God's household is made possible only by God's grace. And so, yes, it's imperative that we obey God's word and we conform to his will because saving faith always produces spiritual fruit. But true God-honoring obedience is always rendered in the context of a loving relationship that's been made possible by the gospel. The close of Paul's greeting, grace, mercy, and peace reminds us that there is more grace in Christ than sin in us. And so in two short verses, Paul has made clear who he is. Paul has made clear who Timothy is. And Paul resoundingly makes clear who his God is. And there's good news even in this greeting this morning is that the grace and the mercy and the peace that came to Paul and that came to Timothy, it can come to you. And it comes to us on the basis, not of the works that we can do, it comes to us on the same way that it came to Paul and it came to Timothy. On the basis of his grace. You see, God the Father did ordain for sin to have a remedy. And at just the right time, he sent forth his son, Jesus the Christ, to live the life that you and I should have lived, to come to the end of that life, to die the death that 
sinners are deserving to die. And you think, wait a minute. He lived a perfect life. He died the sinner's death. It doesn't make sense. Well, it makes sense only when you understand that he died that death as a substitute for all who would repent and believe. And so all who come to the, to the place of going, if there's any way I'm going to be made right with God, it's going to be through not my works, but the work of Christ. I want the work of Christ. I want what, what he accomplished in his righteousness. I want that as I stand before God. So I can say, I have a righteousness. The only way we can do that is if that righteousness is credited to us. Well, what about my sin? The only way that you can stand before God and not have your sin counted against you is if your sin is credited to another. And the Bible says by faith, the righteousness of Christ can become yours. And the sin and the penalty that you deserve because of it can fall on Christ. And you say, that sounds all good, but if he's still dead, I want nothing to do with it. And praise be to God, he's not. Because on the third day, he rose triumphantly to say that there's not, there is not one thing in this world that I don't have power over. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, where will you find grace and mercy and peace? The world will promise it, but it will never deliver on what it promises. Good news this morning is that you can have your life flipped upside down the way that Paul did and the way that Timothy did and the way that scores of others have throughout church history. And it's not by what you can do. It's, it's really by coming to the end of even trying and placing your faith and your trust and turning from your sin because Jesus has done something that you could never do. He's still in the business of rewriting stories and changing lives just like he did with Paul and Timothy. I would call you, if you're not a Christian, to turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. And if you have a question at all, there's no dumb question, there's no silly question, there's too much at stake to sort of say, ah, I don't want to ask. No, eternity is at stake. Talk with someone. Find me after the service. We'd be glad to talk with you, but you can throw yourself on that mercy in that grace. I pray that we would all feel the force and the effect of these two verses in our souls. Certainly, Paul is hopeful that this kind of letter would bring Timothy and the church at Ephesus peace and mercy and grace. I love how John Piper says it. He says at the beginning of his letters, Paul has in mind that the letter itself is a channel of God's grace and mercy and peace. Grace is about to flow from God through this writing to the Christians that he's writing, writing to. And so he says, grace, mercy, and peace. But then you get to the end of the letter and you think, well, wait a minute. What about the grace and mercy and peace that begin? First Timothy ends with this phrase, grace be with you. And so he answers with a blessing at the end of this letter, grace be with you. And so grace, mercy, and peace are flowing through you as we open this letter. And when you get ready to close it, grace be with you. The good news about his grace is it never leaves you. He doesn't abandon you. And so there is grace. 
There's grace as you put the letter away and you leave the gathering. There's grace when you go home to deal with a sick child or an unaffectionate spouse. There's grace if you go home to to a home where no one else is at. There's grace as you go to work and you face temptations of anger or you go home and you face temptations of dishonesty and lust. With as much courage as you can muster up, There is grace to speak of Christ over lunch with those that don't know him. And thus we learn that grace is ready to flow to us every time we open the scriptures. And it doesn't leave us when they are closed. We learn that grace will abide with us when we lay down and when we rise. Covenant life, are you making the most of God's means of grace to you in and through his word? For the next 18 weeks, that's what we want to do. God, would you help Covenant Life Church become a church? that's rooted in truth and that's rooted and overflowing in love. Let's pray. God of good mercy and kindness and grace, we approach you and we ask you to answer our prayers. Answer our prayers to make us a church that's steadfast in truth and that's overflowing in love. And as we think about your word and even those those two directives, as we think about who we are because of Christ, as we think about who we are outside of Christ, as we think about who you are, would you so just realign our, our thoughts so that we would think rightly about you? And we ask you to do that so that we can live rightly for you. And so even in this moment of silence, I pray by your spirit, you would speak, show us what application Show us what it looks like to walk away in truth and in love. Listen now, or speak now, Lord. Your servants are listening.